I failed to welcome all those watching online. Good morning to those watching online. I'm assuming there's more of you this morning. I hope there's more of you this morning um, watching online. And uh, no shame. All right. I get it's, uh, it's a rough, tough sledding out there. And so we're, we're glad that you're able to stay home, be safe, and that we could uh, bring this to you on the live stream. So uh, good morning to, to all of you. All right. And uh, again, good morning to everyone. And uh, one thing that struck me as I'm looking out at the, around the crowd is, all right, how many of you came from more than five miles away? Yeah, this is an extremely nutty crowd that we have here at Calcasca Church of Christ. As people were walking in, I'm like, wait, you live in Bel Air. Wait, you live out in North Sharon. What are you doing here this morning, right? Uh, so again, thanks for being here. Um, so we're in this series called Stretch, and I was doing some research this week. There was a guy named uh, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, in 1887-ish to 1929, he wrote some short stories and a couple of novels. Actually, 63 short stories, or 63 stories, four of them novels, about a well-known detective whose name was Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes. And uh, his uh, sidekick's name was what? Watson, right? And what became the most famous line from those stories and books? Elementary, my dear Watson, right? Have you ever used that or I'm showing my age? Yeah, okay. Um, but you've heard that saying before, right? You've heard people mention that before or maybe you've said it to somebody before. Um, maybe you would be surprised to find out that uh, Doyle never actually penned those words. He never said uh, elementary, my dear Watson. That was nothing that he wrote in any of his stories. It wasn't until 1929 when someone made a movie about Sherlock Holmes and actually used that line in the movie, but it was nothing that Doyle ever penned. Um, other people would say it like that, and he wrote in his stories, elementary, and he wrote, my dear Watson, but he never said those in a common phrase uh, together, which I thought was very interesting, uh, because an elementary thing that we could do is look through the stories and realize he never said those things. Um, yet we give him credit for saying that, and we like to string those words together. And I wanted to talk today about some elementary principles when it comes to God and money and finances. Elementary things that we read in Scripture about finances and God's way of dealing with money that sometimes just bypass us. We just, uh, they blow right by us, we miss them all together, and it's like, man, that was such an obvious thing that was, that was right there uh, for us to see. And we're going to do so by way of Luke chapter 12. Now, Luke chapter 12 is a, the passage we're going to be in, um, and there's a parable in Luke chapter 12 that we really want to emphasize, and again, look at some elementary principles and things that were totally missed uh, by some people when it comes to God's teaching on money and finances. But to understand Luke chapter 12, I think it's important, of course, to understand the context. We always do context before content. And if we're looking at the context of Luke chapter 12, here's some things that we should know. First of all, we don't know necessarily where Jesus is teaching Luke chapter 12 from. Some have said it's in Jerusalem because there are thousands of people that are coming to hear him speak. Some have said he's in Caesarea because he preached a lot in that area. Um, some have said Galilee, the region of Galilee, and that would make sense because Pharisees seem to hang out in the region of Galilee. But we don't exactly know where he's speaking this from, and the experts have their different opinions about it. But in Luke chapter 11, what took place is Jesus went head to head. He butted heads with the Pharisees and other religious leaders. 
And it seemed that the time had now come where he's going to head toward Jerusalem, where he's going to die on the cross for our sins. And in Luke chapter 11, he's given some warnings about the Pharisees. He's just really letting them have it in Luke chapter 11. So when you turn the page to Luke chapter 12, he starts out by saying, beware of the Pharisees, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he calls them hypocrites. Now, leaven is what? It's something that we put to make things rise, but when you just use a little bit of leaven, it affects the whole thing that you put it in. I'm not a baker, obviously, by the way, I'm talking about leaven. You're probably saying, no, that's all wrong, Andy, but I think that's correct, right? When you put a little bit of leaven in, it affects the whole thing. And he says, Be, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And what's the leaven of the Pharisees? What can infiltrate us about the Pharisees? And he says they're hypocrites. They say one thing, but they do another. And if you're not careful... Their actions that they take can infiltrate your heart. And before you know it, you're not living a life according to the principles that God has created us to live by and being the people that God has created us to be. He then goes on to tell them to not be afraid. Well, why would he tell the disciples? And the Bible tells us there were the thousands of people that were crowding around him, stepping on each other. And then there were the disciples, the 12 disciples that he was speaking to as well. Why would he have to tell them to not be afraid after telling them to beware of the Pharisees? Well, in John chapter 12, it tells us that some of the uh, religious leaders actually started to believe in Jesus, but they were afraid to say it because the Pharisees could do what? They could kick him out of the synagogue. And they didn't want that to take place. And so they actually lived in fear of the Pharisees and what they believed for fear that they wouldn't be able to be in fellowship with their brothers and sisters, uh, other Israelite people. And so he tells them to be to not be afraid of the Pharisees. But he says, if you're going to be afraid, be afraid of who? He says, if you're going to be afraid, be afraid of the one that could cast your soul into hell. (laughs) He says to them, listen, if you're going to be afraid of something in this life and in this world, doesn't it make the most sense that there's a fear that we should have of God because he's the one that really controls our eternal destination? He's the one. In fact, in Proverbs, Solomon wrote what? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. And so Jesus tells them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They're hypocrites. And don't be afraid. If you're going to be afraid of anybody, be afraid of the one that could cast you into hell, the one that has uh, the determination of your eternal soul. And then he goes on in the next part of Luke chapter 12 to say, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be afraid to testify about me in front of others. And if you will testify about me in front of others, I also will testify about you in front of the father. Jesus says, don't be ashamed of me here on earth. Don't be afraid. Even though people may want us out of the picture and and may want Jesus dead, don't be afraid of this message that we've come to bring. Because one, we're serving a holy God. And if we testify about Jesus, he also is going to defend us, testify about us before a loving God. Well, then we get to Luke chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 13. And someone in the crowd, after he said these things about beware of the Pharisees, don't be afraid and uh, don't be ashamed of me before others. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, that seemed like an odd question to be thrown out after Jesus had just talked about these things with the Pharisees and not being afraid and testifying about Jesus. And I don't know if the guy was just itching to ask this question. Maybe he just came from a legal fight with his family. I don't know. But he, someone in the crowd yells to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
Well, what we know from that culture is that the firstborn, firstborn, pay attention to this, all right? The firstborn was given twice the inheritance of everybody else in the family, okay? Um, so if you're the firstborn, you might want to take that up with your parents, all right? Don't tell them I said that. Annie's nodding her head. You got it, all right? Um, but yeah, that was culturally what would, what would take place. So I don't know if this guy um, was uh, maybe passed over as the firstborn or if he wasn't the firstborn and said, Jesus, tell the firstborn to share more equally with the rest of us. We, we don't really know what was behind his question other than what was behind his heart in asking the question because Jesus goes on to say this. Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? In other words, you could go to any of these religious leaders, these scribes, and ask this question. Why are you asking the teacher about this earthly stuff and this earthly thing? Why are you taking up my time with a question like this, which really has no value in what we're trying to accomplish here? And he goes on to say, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That's the heart behind the question that the guy had, and Jesus sees right through him. The guy comes and says, tell my brother to share with me. And Jesus says, you know, you need to beware of coveting. That's one of the Ten Commandments, right? We're not supposed to covet. Coveting is looking at somebody and saying, it's not just I want something like you have, it's I want yours. <laughs> right? You see, as my wife said she saw on Facebook Marketplace, somebody in Kalkaska is selling a Corvette um, with 300 miles on it for $100,000. And uh, now you might read that and say, I want that Corvette, uh, coveting what that person has. Or you could say, well, it'd be nice to have a Corvette like that, right? There's a difference in I want yours versus that's kind of a nice thing. I might go look for one of those and see if I could afford one of those, right? He says, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, there's not a big whiteboard up in heaven saying... So-and-so's in first place because they're worth $7 billion. And so-and-so's in second place because they're worth $5 billion. And then go way down to the zillion, trillion, quadrillions. There's Andy. He's got a lot of making up to do, right? Um, there's not a... That's funny, right? Because I don't have that much money. No, not very funny. Anyway, so Jesus says, this is not what life's about. It's not about who dies with the most toys. It's not about who dies with the most money. That's not what it's about. So then he says he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, has exclamation point, so I thought I should yell that part. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's a pretty sobering parable to read, especially if you're someone with a whole bunch. Because Jesus just tells the man... Your life, the value of your life, the meaning of life is not about how many riches that you can accumulate. And he goes on to tell the parable. And in the parable, I want to suggest the ABCs, the simplicity of how God would want us to think about finances and money that the rich fool just absolutely misses. And the first one is that the rich man did not acknowledge God's ownership. 
He didn't acknowledge God's ownership. Did you notice in the parable that it said um, the land produced the crops for the guy? It doesn't say that he went down and then he dug underground and pushed the crops up. It doesn't say that he built some kind of fancy irrigation system to be able to water the crops and that's why it came up. It doesn't give any credence to him whatsoever having anything to do with those crops coming up. It says the land brought it up. Well, who created the land? That's an easy one. God did, right? God created it. God created the rain. He created the sun. He created everything that caused that, those crops to raise up. And the guy, all in the, if you read through that parable slowly, 15 times he refers to I and my and mine and talking to himself. Not one ounce of him acknowledging that it all belongs to God. Not praising God for it. Not uh, glorifying God for the abundance. Everything he thought was just his. He, he refused to acknowledge that it all belonged to God. In First Chronicles 29, 11, David said this. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Even David, with all of his wealth, riches, palace, everything, he realized that it all belonged to God. And that if it were not for God, he wouldn't be in the position that he was in, nor have the stuff that he had to manage. And we know that about David. He was the youngest son of Jesse in Bethlehem. He was not a descendant of Saul, who was the first king. The only reason that he became king was because God said, that's the guy that I want leading my people Israel. David realized that, and he gave credit credit to God. He acknowledged that it all belonged to God. Secondly, the rich man believed in material things for peace. He believed in material things for peace. I think that we probably fall into that trap, and I know we talked about it a little bit last week as well. I remember uh, early in our married life when we really didn't have two nickels to rub together that $100 was a very significant thing for our family. Like $100 before we had kids and everything, it's like, man, 100 bucks. If I had 100 bucks in savings, that was a pretty big deal. Right. Well, then it became five hundred dollars. And it's like, you know, I don't want it falling below five hundred dollars. I'm going to start getting nervous. I'm going to get a little weary about this thing. And then it became a thousand dollars. If I don't have a thousand dollars in there, I'm going to be a little nervous about something that that could come up. And what was I doing? I was placing my peace and my hope in this bank account that if something went wrong, I would have it to rely on instead of relying on God. And that was what this rich fool did. He thought peace was going to be coming from The fact that he had bigger barns full of bigger stuff and more stuff. He found his peace in material things. He found his peace there. I can just sit back and I can eat and I can drink and I can can be merry. And that's where he found his peace. And that, again, is not one of those things that I think God wants us to view when it comes to money and finances and stuff. David in Psalms 52, uh, he wrote that the righteous actually make fun of those who trust in their possessions. (laughs) This is David. Again, he owns a whole bunch of stuff. And he says the righteous people, they actually laugh at, they make fun of people that rely so much on their riches. Why? Because he had a proper perspective that just as Jesus said, your life is not measured by the amount of stuff that you have. The third thing was that the rich man coveted a life God didn't plan. The rich man coveted a life that God didn't plan. Do you ever read anywhere in the Bible where God says not to work? 
You ever see that anywhere? I don't know that I've uh, ever seen um, the word uh, retire. Now, I think we retire from our jobs, but we don't stop working, right? Um, in fact, in the Garden of Eden, what was the big deal? Perfect garden, perfect layout, perfect everything. And did Adam just have a recliner and a giant big screen TV and football to watch? No, he would have had to have been the quarterback, the wide receiver, and the running back, and the left tackle, and everything, right? Um, he didn't have any of that stuff. In fact, what did God say? I'm putting you in the middle of the garden to work it. To work yes, before sin. So I, I think, I, I, would, uh, I would presume that when we are in eternity, that we'll have jobs to do. Now, when sin came into the world, it had to work. And uh, it became labor because there were weeds and thistles and stuff. The ground was fighting back. That was part of the curse that Adam was under when, when they sinned and, and ate the fruit and disobeyed God. But even before that, he was working. And after that, he continued to work. We all have work to do. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about everybody in the church having spiritual gifts, that there's work to be done. And nowhere do we ever see that, other than on the Sabbath day taking a rest, that life is to be about not doing anything. And that's what the rich man coveted. He coveted a life where he could sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. I got to be honest with you. Um, in some weird idealistic fantasy that I have, at 65 years old, I'm going to have some amount of money that I'm going to be able to just wake up whenever I want to, watch as many movies, sports as I want to, have somebody wait on me hand and foot, and eat, drink, and be merry. Okay? That's just being honest with you, transparent before you, right? That's a sin. I shouldn't be thinking that way. We know that there's work to be done. And that even when, if I can't talk anymore, I can't be a preacher, you guys are just like, Andy, you have just lost it. You can't be our preacher anymore. That there's still going to be work somewhere in some capacity for me to do. Even if it's unpaid. Why? Because God didn't tell us that life is about eating, drinking, and being merry, and just sitting back and doing nothing. So we have to be careful not to covet that. Many people work their whole lives to say, I'm looking forward to that day when I can do nothing. But that's not the life that we read in Scripture that God wants us to wants us to covet. Paul in Acts chapter twenty one, um, he was heading to Rome, and uh, I don't really have that fantasy about sitting in a recliner. By the way, that just seemed to put me in a bad light, didn't it? Um, in Acts chapter twenty one, Paul's heading to Rome, and uh, as he's going through his travels, he's saying goodbye to different people in different churches he's visited. And this one guy takes a belt, wraps it around himself, and says, "Here's what's going to happen to you when you get to Jerusalem." I said Rome. I meant Jerusalem. And all the people started crying because they realized that this guy was a prophet and he was saying that Paul was going to die. And Paul looked at him and said, what are you crying for? He's like, I'm not only ready to be bound up for the sake of Jesus, I'm ready to die for him. That's the kind of life we should be coveting if we're coveting any kind of life. The kind of life that says, wherever God puts me, that's where I'm going. Whatever he wants me to do for his namesake, that's what I'm going to do. I think one of the Simple things we miss when it comes to managing finances and money and stuff is that we covet this life where we have so much that we don't have to do anything when that's not who God created us to be. All right, here's a little bit of a lengthy passage, so bear with me, all right? Jesus went on to say this after the parable. He said to his, uh, to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? 
If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I thought to myself, why would Luke put this in right after Jesus tells that parable? Or why would Jesus say this right after this parable. And I thought, just like you and I may hear a message that says, God wants you to not think about stuff as yours, but to acknowledge him as the owner of it all. How he doesn't want us to covet a life of doing nothing. How he doesn't want us to rely on stuff for our safety blanket. We might be looking there saying to ourselves, okay, but how do I pay the bills? How do I put a roof over my head? How do I take care of my family? How do I put food on the table? And the people in this time, it's obviously a much different culture than what we live in today, that you can imagine that they were probably sitting back saying, okay, all we've been about is trying to make it day after day after day. Now you're telling us not to rely on that stuff and that it's not about accumulating wealth. What are we supposed to do? Jesus simply looks at him and says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. You serve the one true living God, the creator of the universe. Don't you think if you're hungry, he doesn't know that you're hungry? Don't you think that he knows when you're thirsty that you need a drink and that he could provide that for you? He says, you're worried even about your life. You can't add a day to your life. So why are you worried about it? Why are you anxious about these things? Jesus says to them, consider the lilies and how beautifully adorned they are. Even Solomon, with all of his wealth, didn't look as good as those. They consider the birds. God feeds them. Isn't he going to feed you also? And he's trying to put the people's mind at ease and at peace to say, if you follow the elementary principles of how God wants you to think about money and finances, he's simply saying, rely on me. Don't rely on the stuff. Don't rely on the things, the material aspect of this world. Trust in God alone. He says, don't put your heart on that stuff. Because where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. I want you to treasure heaven. So real quickly, what do we see? Jesus says, don't be anxious. I know it's real easy to say, well, just don't be anxious anymore, right? (laughs) People deal with anxiety and depression and different uh, medical things and Chemicals in the brain and all kinds of stuff can be very difficult to deal with. And for, for us to just say to somebody, well, just stop doing that, um, it kind of minimalizes what they're going through, right? But Jesus t- says to them, not just don't be anxious, but he says, here's why you don't need to be anxious. As I just said, you serve the creator of the universe. All right? So when it comes to thinking about what you're going to eat, drink, and live and all that, trust in God. Don't be anxious. He says, exercise faith. 
says, oh, you of little faith. We need to exercise faith when it comes to following God and, again, managing the things that he's put us in charge of in this life, whether it's a little bit or a whole lot of bit, whatever the amount is that he's blessed you with to be able to manage, we need to exercise faith when it comes to spending it, saving it, investing it, giving it. We need to trust in God for the answers for that. If he's talking about tithing in Scripture, which I would contend that he absolutely does talk about tithing, and you look at that and say that's a very big amount, it's going to take a lot of trust in God to do that. It's going to take a lot of trust in God to say, I'm going to tithe or I'm going to give generously. It takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of faith to be the rich young ruler. And if the rich young ruler had said, okay, I'll do it, and he went and sold everything that he had and gave it all to the poor and came follow Jesus, that would take a lot of trust. I had some friends, Andy and Shauna, and they heard a missionary speak at their church, and they said, we're going to go do that. And I looked at my friends who I knew in college, and they came up to Indianapolis, and we were in church with them together, and life group together. They sold everything that they had, and they went on the mission field for a while in Tanzania, Africa. And I thought, man, that's faith. That's faith. When you're willing just to pack it all up and say, we're going, right? And not even looking back. And having to raise support from people and humbling yourself and sitting across the table from people and saying, I got nothing to live on. I'm trusting God will provide. Do you want to be part of that team? Right? That takes a lot of faith. That's the kind of faith that we need to have. The kind of faith that can say to this mountain, move, and that the mountain would move. That's a, a spiritual gift of faith. And God says, and Jesus said, oh, you of little faith. Why? Because they were trying to trust in themselves and their possessions for even longer life and for food and for water and for clothing when it's God who provides it all. Next thing Jesus says in there is, fear not. <laughs> fear not. I think that's the biggest thing, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But I think that that's the thing that ties all of this passage together, is fear. It's fear. Now, let's face it, when we come to the world, and the world's teaching us or telling us what we're going to need for retirement, what we're going to need to be able to survive, and... Uh, Price of groceries are going over through the roof, and you can't even go to Taco Bell without spending 20 bucks now when you used to spend 2 bucks to go there, right? And all these things, we just have this fear rising up in us. And Jesus says, why are you afraid? Can you add to your life any more days? And, of course, the answer is no. And so Jesus says, fear not. And finally, he says, give it all to God. Give it all to God. Part of that acknowledging that everything belongs to God is simply just giving it to him. Saying, Lord, everything that I have, it's all yours. You show me what you want to do with it. Now, could God bless you with riches beyond measure? Absolutely. I could tell you a story about a lady that gave a little bit for something, and God blessed her with some, and she gave that, and he gave her more, and he, she gave that, and he blessed her with even more. And she's like, I can't outgive God. Every time I try to give and be generous, he keeps giving me more. And that's because she was being faithful with what God had blessed her with. We need to just give it all to God to say, this is all yours. What do you want me to do with it? And I got to tell you, it takes a lot of pressure off. When I view my home that I live in as being God's and not mine, man, that's a lot of pressure taken off me to say, you know what? I'm just going to trust that God will provide the answers for how to fix something or what to do with this place. When we open it up and invite people in and say, hey, we would love to have you join us or come spend the night, whatever you need from us. Man, it takes a whole lot of pressure off to know that it's God's and not mine to have to deal with. You ever rent a car and you uh, maybe take a curve too sharp or something and you say, ah, it's just a rental. Ever had that attitude or is it just me? Yeah, we shouldn't have that attitude, right? <laughs> Isn't that how we should feel about everything? Right? 
Well, the house needs a roof. Well, it's just a rental. That's okay. We'll take care of it when we do, right? <laughs> the cars that we drive, everything, the job that we have, it's, it's just borrowed because it all belongs to a holy God. But tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, the day that's set aside uh, to honor uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, if there's anything that bothers me about the day, it's the fact that we have to have the day. Um, it bothers me that there had to be a man that would stand up for something that seems so simple and obvious that we are all created equal, right? It's just a bothersome thing that there would have to be a movement about something as simplistic as God created us all. He's the one that divided the nations at the Tower of Babel. He's the one that divided the languages. It was he that did all of this, and yet for one man to look at another because of race, because of where they're from or how they look, would think something differently other than you're created in the image of a holy God just like I am. That's just troubling and, and bothersome. And Martin Luther King at Cornell College in 1962, he said this, People fail to get along because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they have never or they have not communicated with each other. I really think that the reason that we don't follow the principles and guidelines that God puts in Scripture about money and finances, or the reason that we may have trouble with it, I'm sorry, I don't want to assume that people don't live that way, but I think the trouble that comes in our world for trying to deal with money and finances God's way is simply fear. I really do. I think we're afraid. We have this environment that wants to fill us with fear. The world around us wants to be afraid because when we're afraid, we'll go buy one of these, we'll get one of these, we'll invest in this way. And they want us to live by fear. And Jesus simply says, that's not what I want you to do. In fact, you go back to the beginning of Luke chapter 12. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he would be saying to us today, beware of the leaven of the world because they're hypocrites. They tell you one thing, but they live a different way. And he says, don't be afraid. In fact, if you want to fear anybody, fear the one in charge or responsible for your eternal soul. Instead, we should be about testifying about a holy God as opposed to living in fear of a world that they might be able to harm us bodily, but they can't do anything to our eternal destination. Fear of this world equates to bigger barns. Fear of a holy God equates to bigger hearts. God wants our heart. He's not impressed by the size of our barns or how much grain that we have in them or how much money's in our bank account or how fancy our car is. He's not impressed by all that. He simply wants our heart. And when it comes to managing finances and money God's way, it's by surrendering our full life and our full heart to him and acknowledging that everything belongs to him and that the stuff of this world is not my safety blanket. And I'm not going to covet a life that he doesn't want me to have. I'm simply going to follow him and love him and pursue him. Why? Because he's the one that I should live in a holy fear of. He's the one. And when I have that kind of fear, that's when wisdom starts, where I'll truly understand how God wants me to deal with money and finances in this world that he put me in. Let's pray. I'm grateful for the blessings that you do pour out on us, Father. And uh, Lord, I know here in America we are the wealthiest of nations and the average person in our country lives so much greater than the average person in a third world country and around the world. That's not even, it's not even funny. It's not even close. And so father, we're the ones that need to pay the most attention to your word when it comes to how to manage the things you've blessed us with because you've blessed us with so much. 
And Father, I'm afraid sometimes that we fall numb to the fact that we have so much and that it belongs to you, that we start to take our eye off the fact that we are wealthy and that we need to do great things with what you've blessed us with. So, Father, may we not fear the world. May we not fear the future. But instead, may we just put our life in your hands and trust you and follow where you lead. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you're here today and you need prayer for anything whatsoever, I'm going to be over here um, at the cross and have one of my elders and his wife as well. We'll be glad to receive you there and pray with you. All right, why don't you stand? Let's sing. Mm-hmm.